So, um, if you have your Bibles, it's always helpful to follow along. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 11, and hopefully you have the handout. We're going to start with page 41 tonight. I think there's some extra copies there straight back if you need them. So Matthew chapter 11 and page 41 in the handout. Um, I'll have a word of prayer, and then we will, we will dive in. Come on in, we're just getting started. If you need the handouts, they're, they're right straight back there. All right, well, let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, I'm thankful for your kindness to us. Uh, Father, tonight we're reminded of the changes in seasons and weather, and it's another reminder that you are in control, uh, that our world in some ways seems uh, sad and painful and random, uh, but truthfully there is a good God who is behind all things, who's sovereign. And uh, we are thankful that through Christ uh, we know you tonight and that you've spoken to us. Uh, We want him to be honored with the way we use this class time. I pray that you would uh, use your word as we go through it uh, to make us more like Christ. And uh, we ask for this in his name. Amen. All right, so looking at Matthew chapter 11, the top of page 41 there, I have a little paragraph I copied from Dr. Compton's Gospels notes, and then just a little addition that I added, but the gist of it is that we've come to a major crossroads or transition in the Gospel of Matthew. There's already been little hints that not everyone is going to receive Jesus for who he truly is. He's going to face some opposition. We already saw that with some individuals who thought they might want to follow him, but then changed their mind once they realized what that meant. But now it's going to turn to some outright hostility on the part of the religious leaders. And we realize as we go through this passage, it's not just them, but the leaders are representative of a large group of the nation that's going to reject Jesus. All right? So when we think about the structure of these next two chapters, this is a footnote at the bottom of the page, but it's easier just to look at it. I think in chapters 11 and 12, we're going to have three sets of stories with three each. We've talked about before how Matthew seems to like threes. He seems to like to arrange things in threes. He's doing this very deliberate. He's putting thought into how he crafts the story about Jesus. And each set of three starts out with two controversies or two instances where Jesus is being opposed or outright rejected. And then the last story in each set is going to have either an invitation or a statement about his salvation, the people who actually do accept him for who he truly is. So tonight we're going to go through that first set, the ones in yellow, And then when we come back next week, Lord willing, we'll look at chapter 12. So this first little story, what they call a pericope, is in uh, verses 2 through 19. That's point A. And here we have this unbelief or this rejection of both Jesus and John the Baptist. So after he just had the last discourse... Matthew switches, and he tells us about John back in prison. Remember, we were told earlier that he's arrested. Uh, He's been there, Carson suggests, maybe as long as a year. We're not sure how long, but he's been there a while. And he's, he's starting to become discouraged. He's becoming confused over Jesus's true identity. It's a very powerful passage for us, because sometimes we also struggle with discouragement or doubts, right? And it's kind of encouraging to know, first of all, that the great prophet John struggled. And second, we can draw from the same remedy or solution that was offered to him, which is to look to Christ and what Christ has actually accomplished. So he's heard, it says there, about the works of Christ. So you see that there 
in uh, verse 2 are the deeds of the Messiah, is how they put it in the NIV. So verse 2 says, When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? So you notice how he's even questioning. Are, you know, I'm supposed to be the forerunner of the Messiah, but are you actually the Messiah? This is the first time that this, this title, Christ or Messiah, has been used alone for Jesus. I think specifically, in light of John's situation there in prison, he's likely wondering why the judgment that was promised to be part of the day of the Lord hadn't arrived yet. All right? So he, he rightly sees himself carrying out a role like Elijah. He dresses like Elijah. You know, he has a message of repentance just like Elijah. And there were prophecies that Elijah was going to come before the day of the Lord. So one passage, the clearest one we could go to, would be Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. So in the way we order our Old Testament, these are actually the last two verses of the Old Testament. And the, the prophet there says for God, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Or else, I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So Elijah is supposed to come. He's supposed to preach repentance. There's one of two outcomes. Either the people will repent, and that will show up as restored family relationships, restored covenant relationships, or God will come and strike them with a curse. The day of the Lord, judgments will come. And the day of the Lord in the Old Testament is just a broad term that describes God's final campaign, where he will march forward like a king and rightly take back this world, rescuing his people and punishing his enemies. And John's thinking, well, the people haven't repented. <laughs> I'm in prison, but I'm not seeing the day of the Lord judgments. I'm not seeing the judgments that I expect. So does that mean then you, Jesus, uh, are not actually the coming one? And I think there when he says, are you the one who is to come? Or he asks them if he's the coming one. That's just another way of asking, are you the Messiah? And I give you several different Old Testament passages and New Testament passages where that type of language is used for the Messiah. So Jesus' answer to him is in verses 4 through 6. Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, John had probably heard about this stuff already, right? John knew what kind of stuff Jesus was doing. But that's really the solution to any time when we struggle with doubts or concerns or worries. It's just go, it's just go back and remind ourselves about what we already know about Jesus. We don't need something new. There's no magic silver bullet that'll make us better. We just need to go back to what we've known before, but that maybe we've, we, for various reasons, we've taken our eyes off of, right? Just go back to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. That's what Jesus says about his cousin. He's, he's struggling. He has doubts. He's in a tough place. Just go back and tell him about me. Go back and tell him about what I've done. And it's interesting. Yes, ma'am. Mm -hmm. says, uh, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me now? So didn't he have some idea back then? He's just wondering if he was right or not. Yeah, so, so I don't think we should think that John's never believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Because remember, in the, the Gospel of John, he'll point to Jesus and say, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So he has known this. And in his heart of hearts, he probably still knows it. But have you ever known something and still doubted or struggled at the same time? That's just the way our human nature works. We, we're a mixture of two things at once. We can know something and say we believe something, 
but then we can take our eye off the ball, so to speak, and we can start doubting and struggling. Like Peter later, who's going to start sinking in the waves when he stops focusing on Jesus. So I think that's what John is struggling with, and that's why the solution isn't go tell him something new, it's just go back and remind him of what he already knows. That, and Jesus is actually performing the signs of the Messiah. He's doing the things the Messiah was said to be able to do. So he has the credentials, we could say. Yes? What, what do you think it might be that causes people when they read that not to, not to think? I mean, when I, when I read of John's perplexity, I, I think of him as just like the disciples. You know, he questioned that the disciples that were following Jesus, that the twelve, that they that they believed in him. Mm-hmm. But they still struggled because they had a they had their own idea of what it was he was gonna do. Mm-hmm. And it didn't match with what he actually did. So I always felt that John had the same problem mm-hmm. with that. It wasn't that his faith was shaken. It just it just was that he misunderstood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, there's a sense in where John and the other disciples, they don't understand the time gap that we could see now. So we would say Jesus will do everything that he was predicted to do. He is that kind of Messiah. He just isn't that kind yet. He, he still has lots of stuff on his agenda that he still has, has is unfinished, that we're waiting. But that's okay because he's alive. His, his lifespan is now covered over 2,000 years, and it will continue as a human. And so we're still waiting for him to do everything. But they can't see that yet. They're just seeing all of the Old Testament promises, and they're thinking, well, why isn't he doing everything now? And, and I do think that they're, they, as humans, they do struggle with, with faith and, and doubts, just like we do. Um, we don't just lose our faith and give up on, on Jesus. But sometimes when things are going difficult or they not, they're not going the way we think they should, right? then we can, we can start doubting. And um, the solution is just to go back to Scripture. It's just to go back to Scripture and remind ourselves of who, who Jesus is and what he's done for sinners like us and what he someday will do for this whole world. So it's interesting. I gave you some of the passages there from Isaiah. Um, but you can go to the Old Testament. You can find specific verses where the Messiah was predicted to do these things. The only one that's a little bit surprising is the leprosy. So there was no direct Old Testament prophecy that said the Messiah would heal leprosy. But I think Matthew includes that in the story here, and Jesus says it because of the connection with Moses that we talked about earlier. That Leprosy was the type of thing that a new Moses or redeemer like Moses was supposed to do or expected to do. All right? Good questions. Let's flip the page then. Point three at the top of page 42. So Jesus not only confirms his credentials, but I think Jesus also very lovingly confirms John. So he, he's speaking in front of the crowd. You know, John's not hearing what he's saying but he's saying it for John's benefit. He doesn't want anyone in the crowd to think more lowly of John than they ought to, based on what John has just said from prison via these messengers. So at the top of page 3, using two rhetorical questions, Jesus reminds the crowd that John is not a weak or vacillating person. He's not fickle. Okay, he's not the type of person who just struggles back and forth on a regular basis, despite these questions that he's just asked. This is how Jesus says it in verses 7 through 8. He says to the crowd, what, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? So that's the idea of being a fickle or vacillating. You, know, you guys know that's not who John was. When you went out to hear him preach, you didn't go out and hear him preach because he was that kind of person, did you? It's a, it's a question that expects a no answer. And he says, if not, what did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a man dressed in fine clothes? So here's probably the idea of being effeminate or weak is the idea. A, a fancy guy, a soft guy, 
a guy who just gets dressed up and sits around. That's not the kind of person John was, okay? John was a prophet who deliberately dressed like Elijah and, li and deliberately lived a difficult life out in the wilderness, okay? So he's not the type of person who's just struggling because he's, he's weak, all right? But what you actually went out to see, Jesus says, was a prophet, and more than a prophet. So what Jesus is driving at here is that John is not only a prophet himself, but he's also the subject of prophecy. So he actually had prophecy about him. The Old Testament prophets actually predicted that John was going to come, and they actually talked about him, which is more than you can say about other prophets, right? It's one thing to be a prophet. It's even greater to be yourself the, the subject of prophecy. And to point to this, Jesus is going to point to Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. So this is the passage that Jesus quotes in verse 10. He's going to say, This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. So he's essentially quoting, I say there, Malachi 3.1 with a little bit of wording from Exodus 23.20. So if you go back sometime and look up Exodus 23, that's the story of the, the angel of the Lord that will be in front of the people of Israel when they go through the Exodus. That little, that little slice there where it says, ahead of you, that's from Exodus 23. But the rest of it is pretty much from Malachi 3.1. So if we go back and look at Malachi 3.1, and I put it up here on the board so we all could look at it, it actually has four characters, all right? So I try to do this with colors. I try to color code each character so that they stand out. So the person speaking is in yellow. The person speaking is God or Lord Almighty. We see that at the bottom. And he speaks in the first person. So I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. So the I, the my, the me, that's God himself speaking. And then there's a second person. I put him in blue. There's this messenger who will prepare the way before me. So God's talking about a messenger who's going to go ahead of him. And like a king who's coming to a city, he would send minions in front to make sure the path was clear and everything was ready. God is saying, I'm sending John. So John is the character in blue. He's the messenger that was predicted. Then the prophecy goes on, God's speaking. He says, then suddenly the Lord. So now he's, he's not talking directly about himself. He seems to be talking about another person. This Lord, he, he refers to him in the third person. So the Lord is in, in red. So it's not me or my, now it's he or his, right? So this Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. And of course, us, the audience, the people who are listening to the prophecy, we're the fourth character. We're in green. Okay, we're the, the you, the person that's seeking. So if you think about all the characters in this prophecy, God is speaking. God says that someday a messenger will come to prepare his way. And then another person, who he refers to as the Lord, and then he calls him the messenger of the covenant, this person that we've been hoping for or looking for or seeking, he will suddenly come to his temple. So if we put this all together, God the Father is speaking in yellow. John the Baptist is the messenger in blue. This Lord or the messenger of the covenant who comes to his temple is, is the Son, the Son of God. And then we as the audience are the listeners. So this is the, the verse that, that Jesus quotes. But the interesting thing is when he quotes it, he tweaks it just a little bit. He paraphrases it. Because he says, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Okay, So he, he switches me to you. He actually puts himself in the place of God. So in a sense, there's... There's two people in this passage, but those two people are, in another sense, interchangeable. Okay? And I think that the doctrine of the Trinity explains this. How we have one God who we describe as existing in three persons. who They can speak to each other, they can interact with each other, one can send the other, 
but what one does, the other two are also doing because they're not just completely separate people like we as humans are people, but they're, they're actually one God operating and existing forever in three separate persons. It's a great prophecy. It not only affirms who John is, but it also has a lot to say about Jesus and about his own identity. He's perfectly willing to take an Old Testament passage that refers to God and apply it to himself. He doesn't see any issue with doing that. And then he's going to say in verse 11, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. All right, so point four. Since John fulfills this unique role as the Messiah's forerunner, he's the greatest of those born of women. Now, in footnote 19, I, I don't want to get too far off track, but I think that does like, raise a question. Why, why isn't Jesus the greatest born of, among women? And there's a couple different ways that's been answered. I think maybe born among women is just kind of a, a figure of speech for born the normal way. And Jesus is recognizing that there was something unique about his birth. But among the rest of us humans, so Jesus is human, but not born the normal way. But among all of the humans born the normal way, conceived through a father and a mother, he's saying John is the greatest of them. And he can say that because John was the one that was chosen for this very unique role to be the messenger that prepared the way for God himself, when God himself was coming to save, to rescue his people. Okay? Any, any questions there so far before I get to, to point five? There's a, there's a lot there. There's a lot in those verses. But actually, the next verse is considered one of the most difficult in all of Matthew. So we've got to save a little time for it, all right? All right, so let's look at Matthew eleven twelve. So point five, I say there it's another difficult verse. If, as I've argued above, John is not presently in the kingdom... So I think what Jesus has just said is that when the kingdom finally comes, those of us who are in the kingdom then will actually be greater or more privileged than John is now. Okay, So John right now is the greatest among humans, born naturally. But when the kingdom comes, we'll all be more blessed or privileged than John's present position. So that's, that's something amazing just to think about. So it shows us how great the kingdom will be, how great of a privilege it will be for us someday to be in that new heaven and that new earth. But then he goes on to say, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. So basically, if you flip the page and you go to 43, I try to show you just quickly that there's four different possible meanings or translations of this verse. All right, so everyone agrees, if you look at these four different translations up here on the board, everyone agrees about how you should translate the stuff in yellow. And you notice how it's, they're, they're, it's parallel. So everyone agrees he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. Everyone agrees that the kingdom of the heaven is the it that the verse ends with. But in between, he says something in green. He, he has a statement about a, like a verb or an action. So it's either the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, or if you look at the second option, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing. So it's either the kingdom of the heaven is being attacked, or something negative is happening to it, or it itself is advancing and progressing in the world. So the first option would be a very negative thing that Jesus is saying. The second option would be a very positive thing. Then the, the second part, where it talked in red there, the other verb, again, it could be a positive statement or a negative statement. So either the kingdom of heaven is being grabbed or raided or seized or plundered, or people are just trying desperately to get into it. You see how those are two very different meanings? So either I'm doing something negative to attack the kingdom, or... I so desperately want to get into the kingdom that I'm using force in order to get in. I desperately want to get in. It's like 
the Black Friday sales when the door is shutting and you're trying to shove your way in because you just desperately want to get in the store. So you know how these math things work. If you have two, two things where each one of them could be two different things, that means you get a total of four different interpretations. And that shows up in some of our English translations. So four different ways that this can be translated. But I think the first one, actually the NIV, which is actually what the ESV, the NASV, most of our English translations have something like the first one. And I think that's correct. The reason I say that is because the, the stuff in green, he uses a verb and then he uses a noun that are related. And you can see how they tried to bring that out. It's violence done by violent people. It's a verb and a noun that are related, that have something in common. And I think the other ones don't very accurately bring that out. There's other technical, more grammatical reasons. But if you've ever wondered why we have differences in our translations, it's because sometimes verses are very hard to translate. And good people do disagree. But I think here the majority of our translations have it correct with the first option. What Jesus is saying is that ever since John has started preaching the gospel, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence. It's being, it's being rejected. And violent people, and I think in the context, the violent people are the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, which would have been a, a striking, startling thing to say about them, right? They're the violent people. They're the, they're the bad people. They've been raiding it or plundering it. I think, and I say this here in, in point six in the notes, you can see the, the longer version of it. I think that could go either two ways. Either they're snatching it away, so there's people who want the kingdom, and they're taking it away from them. So in Matthew 23, Jesus is going to say that the Pharisees actually keep people from entering the kingdom. Remember, he's going to say that. So he could be saying the same thing here. Or related to that, he could be saying that they're, they're plundering the kingdom by snatching away citizens so John and Jesus and us today, we're trying to get kingdom citizens, right? In a nutshell, that's what we're after in our church. We're trying to get people today to turn from their sins, accept Jesus as their Savior, and then they become citizens of heaven. They become citizens of the, the kingdom that's coming. But the Pharisees, through their teaching, through their rejection, through their views of Jesus, they're actually stealing people from the kingdom. They're plundering the kingdom. So either way, I think he's saying something very negative about these religious leaders. That's the most difficult verse in Matthew, some people think. And I just tried to tackle it in a few minutes. But any questions about it? Yes, sir. Yeah, and that should be, thank you, it should be C. Yep, that's a typo. I meant, to, I meant to say that, so I'm glad you brought it up. It should be A and C. A and C together. And so if you notice, A and C is also the majority of the, the English translations that we use, right? But you do have, you've got some good commentators. Carson argues for B. Hendrickson argues for D. So it's not real cut and dry, but... I gave you my best shot in a short amount of time at arguing for the first option. Yes? So why did they use the kingdom of heaven instead of just saying the earth? Mm -hmm. So I think the kingdom of heaven is taken from the book of Daniel. So in the book of Daniel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, remember, he sees a dream of those, uh, the statue that's made out of different metals that represents the kingdoms of the world. And then he sees a, a rock that it, it says it's not made with human hands that comes from heaven and it destroys the, uh, the statue and then a new kingdom is, is set up. So I think it means a kingdom that comes from heaven. So you could paraphrase kingdom of heaven as kingdom that comes from heaven. So our ultimate hope, our destiny as Christians isn't just to go to heaven, that other realm, that dimension where God dwells, in a special way, and stay there forever. You know, is it Tom Sawyer, I think, says in his book, like, if we're going to go to a cloud and just play a harp all day, I'm not sure if I really want to go. Does that sound familiar? He says that in one of Tom, or uh, in uh, Mark Twain's books. 
I think some Christians, we have that idea, like we're just going to go to heaven and we're not really sure what that's like. But actually, our hope is that heaven comes here. God is actually going to return here in the person of his son, and he's going to make this world right. We're going to go back to the Garden of Eden. The curse is eventually going to be removed. And this world is going to be what it was originally created to be after an extreme makeover, if I can use that term, right? Peter describes it as fire dissolving the elements, okay? So it's not just a little tweaking. It's an extreme makeover. But in the end, it's a, it's a new heavens and earth. And I think that's what Jesus refers to as this kingdom that comes from heaven. But right now, you and I, who have turned from our sins and are trusting in Christ, we belong to that kingdom. We're citizens of that kingdom. That's why the apostles can talk about us being strangers or aliens or pilgrims in this world because we're living in a world that we don't really belong to anymore. And so the Pharisees, even though they so desperately think they want to go into the kingdom, they actually, through their rejection of Jesus, are attacking it. And I think the way they're attacking it is by keeping people from entering it by keeping people from being the citizens. I think that's what Jesus is referring to by raiding or plundering. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. Uh, the text to sign says, doesn't it say kingdom heaven referring to the kingdom? Yeah, I would say it's, it's that and the final state. So I, I think, I, I believe there will be a thousand-year rule that the book of Revelation describes where Jesus will rule here on earth and the curse won't be completely removed. There still will be some unbelievers here present. So it's the, the curse will slowly get rolled back, but it won't be fully removed until after the thousand years. But what happens on the other side of the thousand years is just a continuation of that kingdom. So I like to think of the millennium as just the first phase of the kingdom of heaven. It's not the whole thing in itself which is probably slightly different than how Toussaint would explain it. Because when you read that, mm -hmm. it's, it's say like the citizens are being subjected to violence, whereas the actual kingdom is... Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you remember back a while ago, I had a slide where I had a triangle, and I tried to illustrate it as a triangle, where you have the king, and then you have the realm or the place where we're ruled, and then we have the citizens. So for the kingdom to be here per se, all three have to be present. We have to have the king, we have to have the people, and then we have to have a place where we're under his rule. Well, we have two of the three. We have the king, he's been born. We have the people like us who are being gathered. Now we're waiting for our place. We're waiting for our home. We're waiting for Jesus to return and gather us to himself and make this world right. But I think sometimes the New Testament writers will refer to the whole by referring to a part. That's a figure of speech. You can refer to a whole by a part. And so the part, I think, that's getting referred to here is the citizens, the, the people. Okay. All right. So point seven, the, the kingdom's being attacked. I think the kingdom is being attacked because Jesus is being rejected. And if Jesus keeps being rejected, people are being raided or plundered from the kingdom. But point seven, the problem was not with John or Jesus. The problem was with the hard hearts of the people. He calls them for the first time this generation in verse 16, which is going to become kind of a, a stock phrase that keeps getting repeated through the the gospel. I had a teacher once that told me, you don't want to be called this generation in the gospels. It's not a good thing. It's a derogatory term. I think it's a, it's a way of using distancing language. So sometimes just for fun between my wife and I, my wife might say to me, do you know what your son did today? Okay, what is she doing there, right? She's distancing herself. Or I might say, do you know what your daughter did today, right? God does that sometimes with his people. In the Old Testament, he would refer to them as this people, this people, even though they're his people, he's holding them, so to speak, at arm's length because he disapproves of how they're acting. They're not acting like their father. Okay, so I think Jesus is doing the same thing. We'll talk about this a little bit more with his this generation language. Okay, so he's talking about this people. You don't want to be called that, okay? Jesus calls them this to calls them to listen carefully to his words, 
but they do not have ears that can hear. So let me read verses 15 and 16. So here Jesus says, Whoever has ears, let them hear. To what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to others. So this phrase there, whoever has ears, let them hear. I think that's a reference to, to regeneration, to the, the new birth, the change of nature. So there's the same message goes out to all people. But why don't some people re- accept it? Because they, they haven't been born again. They don't have a heart that's receptive to it, or they don't have ears that can hear. Okay, that's what Jesus is saying. If you do have ears to hear, then Jesus is saying, listen, pay attention to what I'm saying. But these people that he's talking about, this disgeneration, they're actually like children who are fickle. And I try to explain this in point eight, flipping the page. He, he says that basically they don't like John, and they don't like me, and we're very different people, which proves that the problem wasn't with the messenger and the problem wasn't with the message. The problem was with the people who didn't want to accept it. And he says they're like kids who are sitting and they're arguing about what kind of game they want to play. Okay, so first one group says, you know, I want to play a happy game. I want to play like a wedding game. And the other side is like, no. And then this side is like, I want to do like a dirge or I want to play like we're doing a funeral. Okay, so they're playing house, but one's like a happy house, one's sad house. But the two groups keep fighting with each other. But in the analogy, this little parable that he's telling, the people are both sides. So the people aren't one or the other. The people are both at the same time. They're being inconsistent. They're being illogical. They call Jesus a drunkard. Not because I think Jesus got drunk, but they're calling him that because he was willing to have meals with people. He was willing to celebrate with people. He ate a normal diet, which in their day would have included wine. He liked to laugh. He liked to spend time with people at the table. John's the complete opposite. John lives like a nomad. He lives out in the desert. He eats locusts. Okay? He's not the kind of person that you would have. I think Jesus is the type of person you would have liked spending time with. You would have enjoyed having him at your house for dinner. John might have been a little difficult to have at your house for dinner, okay? Two very different type of people, but they rejected both. So you see Jesus' point there? The fact that they rejected two very different types of messengers who were preaching the same message proves that the actual problem is with them, the people, okay? He calls them fickle children. All right, so point 10, I'm going to talk a little bit about this word generation. It, it's important because it shows up regularly in the book of Matthew. It'll become very important when we get to chapter 24, the Olivet Discourse, because there's going to be a very controversial verse. It's, it's going to show up nine times in the book of Matthew, where Jesus refers to the Jewish people with a word that's commonly translated as generation, and I give you the references there. But as I suggest, I think there's several factors that indicate that he's not using it to refer to what we normally think of as a, as a generation. So when we say generation today, we mean like the baby boomer, boomers, generation X, the millennials, generation Z. I don't know what are some of the other ones right now, right? There's all these different generations. Basically, people who are born around the same time. Every 15, 20 years, right? So we're looking at human history and we're taking off slices, like slices of the family tree, horizontal cuts. Everyone who's born about the same time. And I'm suggesting that's not how Jesus is using the word. That's not how Matthew is using the word. He's using it to talk about a group of people, a a group of children, okay? It's a family term and it's a big family term. It's a family that started all the way in the time of Moses and still continues today, all right? So just quickly, some of the reasons for that. First of all, that's how the word is used in other Greek writing of the time. So Josephus lives just a little bit after Matthew. Josephus is alive, and he's part of the rebellion that takes place in the Jewish war from AD 66 to AD 70. He writes a history about it. He writes it in Greek. So he's a Jewish man who lives in Palestine, about the same time as Matthew, 
And he uses the same word, and when he uses it, he usually uses it to talk about a family. So, for example, when he tells the story about Noah, he says, Noah feasted with his family, and it's this word. Or Rahab, when she was saved in Jericho, she was saved with her family. Or at the time of the Jewish war, a man named Simeon, because of the Romans, he committed suicide after he killed his own family. And then we realized a little bit later that his family included his wife, his children, and his aged parents. So we would say those are multiple generations, right? We would say that's three different generations. But in their language, that's all under the same term. He's just talking about a large, extended family. He uses this term. Or when Titus finally enters the city of Jerusalem after they've gone through the horrible siege with all the starvation, Josephus says that his family, or that whole families were found dead. All right? So point A there, I think this is how the word is used in other Greek literature. Point B, I think this is how the word is used in Deuteronomy 32, 5 and 20. So I think this is actually what Jesus is drawing on. So I think Jesus and Matthew are both thinking of a specific passage in the Old Testament where this type of language is used. Okay? So Deuteronomy 32, 5, God says about the people of Israel, they're corrupt. They're not his children. To their shame, that should be shame there instead of same, to their shame, they are a warped and crooked, and then we have our word. I think it should be translated family or group of children. So you notice how God is speaking through Moses, and he's holding the people at arm's length. They're corrupt people. They're not my children, okay? They're a warped and crooked generation, but it's actually, I think, better at family. So children and family being used interchangeably. And then just a few verses later, verse 20, they are a perverse, there's our word again, it could be generation, but I think it's better family. They're a perverse family, children who are unfaithful, okay? And there's already point C there. I say there's already been other places in this passage where he's going to start talking about the people as children. Even when he comes up with the parable, remember? It's parable about children who are arguing in the marketplace. When we get later into the book, he's going to talk about us, who are his followers, as his little ones. You know, you and I are Jesus' true family. He died without any biological descendants. So Isaiah 53 said that he would be cut off without any physical seed, with any physical offspring, but that after his resurrection, he would see many descendants, which was kind of a paradox, right? After his resurrection, he's going to have a very large family. I think that's a reference to you and I. So I think what's happening in the Gospel of Matthew, and this becomes more obvious when we get to chapter 13, is that there's a great sorting going on in this world. There's essentially in this world only two families when you break it all down. There's a family that belongs to Jesus, people who have his righteousness, who have his death on the cross as their death, who are attached to him. Paul will say it's like a man attached to his wife, right? Like a husband and wife. Or Jesus will say it's like a branch that it's attached to a vine. Or the apostles will say it's like being joint heirs, right? We have this connection with Jesus that's so tight that secures our eternal destiny in his kingdom, that we could be called his family. He calls us family members. But the rest of the world, the rest of the world is actually still the offspring or the family of Satan, right? And that Jesus is going to say this very clearly later to the Pharisees, right? You, you are actually Satan's children, right? You think of yourself as Abraham's children. He'll say this in the Gospel of John, but you're actually the children of the devil, this sorting is going out in this world, and finally, at the final judgment, will be separated forever, physically separated from those who don't belong to Jesus' family. I want you also to notice here that point D, that he doesn't seem to include Jesus and John in this generation. So if I was speaking to a bunch of people who are my age, and I was talking about how we're all part of the same generation, I'd have to be part of it, right, if I'm the same age. But if he's using it in a different sense, they can be part of the, genea, or the generation or the family, 
that he himself and John and you and I who accept who he truly is, we can be separate from it. So just one more verse and then we'll, we'll be done here because this may be getting a little, a little heavy. This is from Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. Remember Peter, he boldly stands up. This, this common fisherman now emboldened and empowered by the Holy Spirit gives this great sermon where thousands of people come to Christ. When he gets to the very end of that sermon, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That sounds a lot like John, doesn't it? Yeah. Repent, receive forgiveness, be baptized. And remember he said that Jesus would baptize them with the Spirit. So Peter is just picking up the torch from John and from Jesus, and it's the same torch that you and I are still carrying today. We're calling on people to repent, to receive forgiveness of sins, to be baptized, to be parts of churches, and then to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then that passage goes on, it says, with many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them. So remember, he's talking to his fellow Jewish people there at the day of Pentecost. Save yourself from this corrupt, in most of our translations, generation. Have you ever tried to remove yourself from your generation? Like if you're a baby boomer, you try to become a millennial. Or if you're a millennial, you try to become a Gen Xer. We can't do that, right? You're pretty much stuck in your generation, if that's what we're talking about. But that's not what Peter's talking about. He's talking about a family of people who are not connected to Christ, who are going to suffer neath God's wrath. He's actually saying you can remove yourself. You can save yourself from that family by becoming part of a new family, and you do it, he says, by repenting of your sins, right? expressing that faith then through baptism. All right? So this is going to become a very important concept as we go through Matthew's Gospel, that there's ultimately two families, a family that belongs to Satan, a family that now belongs to Jesus, people that he's bought with his own blood. We live in this world mixed together, okay, like weed, are weeds and wheat, remember the, the wheat and the tares, but someday at the final judgment we'll be separated out forever from each other. Any, any questions over that verse? It kind of sounds like this generation and generation are different. Two different meanings in the word. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. The, one means like a family in a group, mm -hmm. and then the other one's a bad term that says this generation. Yeah, so the word generation, as I understand it, it entered the English language through the Bible. So we got many of our old English words from Latin because they showed up in the Latin translation of the Bible. So when they translated this verse into Latin, they used a verse, a Latin word that looks kind of like generation. I don't speak Latin, but something like that. And then we took that word and we brought it into English. And if you go back and you look at the, the Oxford Dictionary that shows archaic meanings of English words, the word generation used to mean like a family, a group of children, the place where you were born. It had a wide range of meanings, just like it does in Greek. The problem is, is we've lost meanings. And so now today, if you say generation, what's everyone think of? They just think of like baby boomers, millennials, they think about the, the, your contemporaries. So it basically means your contemporaries who were born about the same time you are. But I'm suggesting that's not how the, the Bible's using it. That's not how Jesus was using it. And that's not even how it was originally intended in our English Bibles. It's just that we've forgotten that, that old meaning of it. And we've given it a new meaning that it didn't used to have. Or didn't exclusively have. So yeah, you just don't want to be called this generation. And uh, people will ask me then, well, what, what words should we come up with? And I think a group of children or families would be a good substitute. Jesus is saying, you know, Peter here is saying, save yourself from this family. Jesus is saying you are a perverse and crooked family. And they're getting this language from, from Moses. Moses in Deuteronomy 32 you can go back and look at those two verses, verse 5 and verse 20, is where this originally came from. Okay? All right. So all that just to tackle the first of our set of three, okay? So we'll have to go through the next ones quickly, 
And if we need more time, we'll just pick up next, next time. But look at verse 20. If you've got your Bibles open, look at verse 20. You see that then that starts the next section? So like in my NIV, I've got a paragraph header that says, Woe on unrepentant towns. And then verse 20, I've got a then. That's a pretty important then, I think, in Matthew's account. We're, we're coming to a, to a crossroads, okay? From this, from this point forward, Jesus is going to have very critical or harsh things to say about his enemies. And then he's also going to have more private teaching for his own followers. Before this, it was very public preaching, calling people to repent. Now, for the first time, we get an indication in Matthew's Gospel that most of the people in the nation aren't going to repent. And so, since they don't repent, they're not going to immediately receive their kingdom. And you and I today, 2,000 years later, are still waiting for the people of Israel to repent. And we know now that they won't until someday God will return from heaven in the person of His Son, and He'll pour out His Spirit on them, and He'll actually cause them to. So I think that little word there, I say there, point one, it marks a significant shift in Jesus' preaching. He pronounces these woes on these two cities. So we got Chorazin and Bethsaida. I always want to say Bethesda, but that's a different place, right? Not only in Allen Park, but also in, uh, in the New Testament, okay? So it's Bethsaida. So Chorazin and Bethsaida. So if you can kind of see that little town there that's circled in red on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, that's Capernaum. That's where Jesus has been based. These are two other towns that are close by. Bethsaida, it's kind of disputed. There's two different towns that probably had the same name. But the long and the short of it is that within a few miles of Nazareth, are these cities where Jesus has been regularly preaching and performing miracles. People have seen many of his credentials, these same credentials that he just reminded John about, and they've said, no, I, I don't want him. I don't want what he offers. And probably what causes them to say that is because his preaching has been, you need to repent. And as sinners, we don't like to be told that. Naturally, we would never accept that. It's only through the Spirit that we ever do, right? So the, just seeing the miracles wasn't enough, okay? People don't need just more evidences, more proofs. What they actually need is God's grace. They actually need a changed heart. And nothing proves that more than what happened there in Galilee during Jesus' ministry. He says something startling. He says that if the two pagan cities of Tyre, Sidon, and even Sodom, I mean, the prototypical evil city. He says, if Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom had seen the miracles performed in them that are being performed now in Galilee, they would have repented, which that has all kinds of theological implications, right? That means, first of all, that God is just in withholding revelation. God is never obligated to do anything for us, right? Because he found us not as neutral people or as innocent people. He finds us as sinners and rebels, right? And so for him to reveal himself, to speak to us, to save us, is always grace. And so it was not unjust for God to withhold that from Tyre, from Sidon, and from Sodom. It also means here, because he's going to go on and say it's going to be better for him, that there must be degrees of punishment at the final judgment. So withholding revelation will actually reduce their judgment. And those people in Galilee who received more revelation will actually be judged harsher. So as, as Carson says in his commentary, what's that say about the modern Western world, right? With all of the revelation and the opportunities that we've been given, if we fail to heed that call to repentance, it must be worse for us, right, than it will be for Tyre and Sidon and Sodom, okay? Last point then, we go to verses 25 through 30. So why haven't they accepted? Why haven't cities like Chorazin and Bethsaida accepted Jesus for who he truly is? The problem is that they haven't had God reveal himself to them. So it's not just 
the revelation through the miracles that saves, but it's actually a change of heart that allows you to rightly interpret the miracles. This has implications, I think, for the way we, we share the gospel with friends. Uh, sometimes I think we're tempted to just kind of arm wrestle people intellectually into decisions. Or sometimes we just think they need more proof, more evidences. You know, if I can just show them one more video, if I can just give them one more apologist to listen to, if I can just answer one more question, right, then they'll accept it. Well, that's, that's not true. They have to have evidences, right? They have to have revelation. There's nothing wrong with us answering questions, but that will never be enough. <laughs> they also need something else that's indispensable, that always has to be there, and that's God's grace. It's his work of regeneration. It's his change of hearts. Because otherwise, they don't rightly interpret the evidence. You can have all the evidence in the world, but if you don't interpret it correctly, it means nothing, okay? These people have seen Jesus face to face. Think of that. They've seen Jesus face to face. They've seen him perform great signs and miracles, and their hard hearts have already said no to it, okay? So it's always by God's grace that we receive the gift of salvation, all right? Jesus is going to thank God here. So let me just read this. This is verses 25 through 27. Some people have said this sounds like the Gospel of John has, already sh has just showed up in the Gospel of Matthew. And I don't find that too surprising because I think both John and Matthew are telling about the same person, Jesus. They both were there. So sometimes I think it should be expected that they sound like each other. But Jesus says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and the learned, and you've revealed them to little children. So here's another place where he calls us children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So he thanks God for withholding revelation, and he also thanks God and praises God for revealing revelation. To people who think they're wise and learned in this world, he withholds revelation. To people who are humble and come to him like little children, he gives them revelation. All right? he, he says something startling about himself. Look at verse 27. It's not just that the Father chooses who to reveal, but what's he say there? He chooses. So the Father has given the choice to the Son, and the Son is the one who chooses who he's going to give revelation to. That's a very startling thing for him to say about himself, right? He's putting himself there, just like that verse in Malachi did. He's putting himself on equal footing with God himself, right, with the Father. He's, he's taking here the attributes, the prerogatives of God, and he's applying them to himself, and he, he's right to do it. And the, So you have this great statement about God's sovereignty, his election, his decision about who he's going to save and who he's not going to save, but then that's balanced with one of the greatest invitations in the gospel. It's unique to Matthew, right? We can never pit God's sovereignty against human responsibility. The two go together. They're friends. We can never pit the doctrine of election against the need to urgently call people to repentance. The two go together, even though in our minds sometimes they're a paradox. Because Jesus himself, look what he says in these final verses. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and I am humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. That's a great invitation, right? It goes out to all people. It has all kinds of echoes and allusions to the Old Testament, the promises that of someday having a peaceful, restful world, free from sin that you and I will live in. And he's saying, if you find yourself weary, and you want peace and rest, then you come find it through me. And he, his hands are open to all people come to me, all right? So we never have to pit or decide which is it. Is it God's sovereignty and election, or is it our need to repent? It's always both. The two of them always go together 
And this great passage in this section in Matthew has the two back to back. All right, I'm out of time. We'll stop there from time. We actually got through the chapter. I didn't know if we would. I talked fast. And uh, Lord willing, we'll tackle chapter 12 next week. I'll see you then.